Hello, welcome to 365 Dates of Travel with Fran. I'm Fran. Welcome to my podcast. The main aim for this podcast is to make you smile from something I say and or laugh at something I did. So feel free to laugh away at me and at my expense. That's what I'm here for. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast all about the September chapter from the book 365 Dates of Travel, The Second Six Months. And in this chapter, I have stories from 1996 when I went to Ireland, 1999 Space Camp, which was just fantastic, a very brief meant to be a teaser from Africa in 2014 a trip to Vegas and a few other places in 2017 and also in New Orleans in 2018. So back in 1996 when I went to Ireland, it was when I had finished my nanny job in Denmark and I was leaving Denmark, which was a very hard thing for me to do. It was one of those situations where I could only get a two-year visa and I was I was going to have to leave at some point and I'd rather have left when everything was going well, when I had friends and everything around me because over time a lot of people had left and I didn't want to be the last man standing. So I was leaving Denmark even though I didn't have to exactly at that point and I didn't need to exactly at that point, but that was the point I chose. I had also had the plan at one point to go study and I was going to go study in Canada. So the time of year that I left would have potentially led into that situation if I'd been starting university in, say, September, um, which I believe is correct for the Canadian study year. But that didn't quite happen. And so I found myself leaving Denmark. I was, of course, first port of call was to go back to London. And I was staying with friends to start with until I sorted myself out. And I'd managed to get myself a job with triplets, which was so exciting to me. Triplets are my thing, particularly when it comes to nannying. So I did specialize as a multiple birth nanny for a lot of my career, definitely the end part of my career. But in 1996, I was still starting my career, really. I was only a few years in and was um, building up my skills so that I could specialize in the multiple births. And so I'm very happy that I got this job with triplets and I was going to find somewhere to live around near where they were, but I hadn't got around to that yet. And the job actually potentially came with an apartment or at least an apartment that I could stay in for a little while until I got myself sorted out. So I didn't need to exactly rush to find somewhere to stay and I didn't need to sort of, I didn't have anything else I really needed to do, but the job didn't start for a couple of weeks. So I decided I would go traveling and I ended up in Ireland. So from England, you can just catch obviously a bus to the ferry and a ferry across over to Ireland, straight to Dublin. 
And I have quite a bit of diary and sort of notes for this trip because it was in the phase where I was keeping a daily diary, whether I was traveling or not. And I also still have the guidebook um, where I've got some notes in the back. And based on my scribblings in the back of the notebook, uh, the guidebook, it looks like I had a daily budget of around 15 pounds. Now I'm going to assume that's English pounds, but um, Ireland also has the monetary note of pounds. So we have Irish pounds and English pounds, which can be a little bit confusing. And I'm not 100% sure all the time which pounds I was talking about. But I think in the back of my guidebook, I probably would have been talking about English pounds and I can't remember what the exchange rate is. But once I'm in Ireland, I'm talking about costs in Irish pounds. But 15 pounds, whether it was Irish or English, wasn't really a lot of money. So I'm not sure exactly how I was planning to stick to that because I really didn't (laughs) stick to that. (laughs) Um, There were quite a few higher expenses that I paid, including a tour, souvenirs, and little rides on a horse and cart where I got invited out for a Guinness later from a guy who was probably more triple my age rather than even double my age, which I declined. (laughs) But, you know, it's always nice to have an offer. Another reason for choosing Ireland was that I had a friend who had lived in Denmark and had returned to Ireland and it was at least someone I could catch up with and I was it was really hard to leave Denmark. I really didn't want to leave Denmark. <laughs> um, so catching up with a friend who I could also talk to with about Denmark was just like icing on the cake. So I go traveling to a new country where I'd never been before and get to catch up a friend and talk about and remember the wonderful Denmark. In some of the diary from the trip, I talk about, or I mention a lot about the hostels, what was actually in them, what they looked like, what facilities they had, and everything sort of about how they worked. Because at the time I had a plan of opening up my own hostel. So I was planning, designing, organizing, and trying to work out. I was trying to make the perfect hostel, like the hostel that I would like to have stayed at every single place that I went to. And so I was taking notes on everything that I could find along the way to help me make that dream come true because I'd actually, I'd come across a fellow traveler, an American traveler who talked about how he had opened a hostel specifically for the Atlanta Olympic Games. So these had only been not that long uh, previously, so Atlanta, they were in the summer of 1996 and we're in September. So it was a month almost two months, I guess, to the end of the those Olympics. And he had basically, like obviously there's, I don't know all the details and it, now it sounds a bit fanciful to be honest, but he had managed to find an old building that he was able to rent for a short period of time. He went to the hardware store, built these wooden frames of beds. He went to, um, he literally said he got the mattresses from like the rubbish, people who'd put mattresses out on the streets. 
<laughs> to be picked up. Um, he went around the streets and collected old mattresses, bought cheap mattresses wherever he could. Um, so nothing was new. Everything was just handmade and slapped together. And he didn't actually, and he had more mattresses than he had bed frames. And basically, he said accommodation was in such short supply during that sort of two week period that he could charge people ridiculously high amounts and they would pay it, even if it was just a mattress on the floor in the corridor. Well, obviously that's not exactly what my hostel would be like, but he gave me the inspiration. It's like, well, if he can sort of do that and do that quickly, then why can't I? So he made uh, quite a lot of money. Obviously it was a lot of money to us at the time. It would not be considered a lot of money now. He was, but it, it, it paid for his travels, and that's what he was now doing. He was now spending the money that he'd earned there. But he was still staying in youth hostels <laughs> as opposed to five-star hotels. But it was just enough inspiration that I felt like, well, if he can do it, so can I. And, of course, the next Olympics in the year 2000 were going to be in Sydney, which is technically – Sydney's not my hometown, but it is my home country. Um, not that I'd been back <laughs> – um, but, and I thought, well, what a perfect time to start a hostel, start it so that it's ready to open. So I have an amazing open by being full all the time during the Olympics. And, you know, you couldn't ask for a better time to actually start. But I never actually put any of that into practice. I never did open a hostel. Although, you know, obviously now it's more Airbnb type accommodation people are thinking about. And I know a lot of the younger people don't seem to use youth hostels, definitely not as much as they did before. And when they do, they want a lot more luxury than we would ever have expected from youth, hostel, youth hostels back in the 1990s. feel a bit bad when the young girls start or young people start going off and traveling and they're talking about how they've bought premium economy flights or business flights because, oh, I can't stand a flight for that long. And, and they're staying in hotels and getting Ubers and taxis all around as they travel. And it's such a different way of experiencing the world. And obviously, I enjoy my luxury now. and I don't begrudge anyone a bit of luxury, especially if you've got the money. <laughs> but I do feel like they're missing out a little bit on some of the experience, but it does sound like they've gone downhill a little bit since my day. There's a lot more um, unsavory people apparently, or just not unsavory is the wrong word, I guess disrespect. So disrespect for other people's belongings and space and privacy and things along that line. Not that you ever got lots of sleep necessarily in hostels. You were always being disturbed by someone's either snoring or moving in the bunk bed where you're on top and bottom bunks or people leaving for early trains or arriving late at night or going out and coming home drunk and not being able to make it up the ladder to the top bunk. It's always fun watching a drunk person climb up a, a ladder in a bunk bed while they're trying to be quiet. We all know that you make more noise when you're trying to be quiet <laughs> than when you're not trying to be quiet. But it's part of the experience and you meet so many more people when you're traveling in hostels. 
And I'm still friends today with people that I met from the hostel. So I'm glad I had the hosteling experience, but I'm also glad I don't have to use that as an option. Um, (laughs) I think about it every now and then and like I was definitely against the official hostels back in the day. I found I met a lot, it was easier to meet people in the private hostels, but the private hostels weren't necessarily as clean and tidy as the official youth hostels, like the ones associated with the Youth International Youth Hostel Association. Um, you paid more for those hostels, but they did have better facilities and cleaner. So, you know, maybe I could try and do one of those official hostels one day. But back in 1996, there's, you know, no way. I just went with whatever was cheapest because, well, I had no money, but I was still trying to travel the world the best that I could So I didn't stick to that £15 budget, but my accommodation was still fairly cheap most of the time. And I did get a night or two free by staying um, with my friend Annette in her (laughs) little bedsit. But there's quite a lot in the September chapter about my trip in 2017, which was quite a multifaceted trip. So it started out as a work conference, which was being held in Vegas, which is how I ended up in Vegas. And then from there, I looked at all sorts of things of what I could see in the vicinity of the area and decided that the national parks, like particularly around Utah, was what I really wanted to do. So being the first time in Vegas, besides an hour or so, back in 1992 between buses, I wanted to see everything. Obviously, the Strip had changed. Well, I never made it to the Strip back in 1992. I made it to the very top of the Strip, which is now the Stratosphere. But that was as far as I went. So I wanted to see the lights, the glamour, and all the stuff that comes with Vegas. So I had plenty of time to stay in Vegas itself, and I planned lots of day trips out to um, the Grand Canyon, to Area 51. Oh, highly recommend the day trip out to Area 51 and all things alien. (laughs) It's just a fun day to just imagine what if and what does really happen that we have nothing we don't know about. What does the government do behind closed doors and why? Is there high security in the middle of the desert around a place that supposedly does not exist? Why does it have its own airplane, not airplanes, its own um, airline? That's the word I'm looking for. Why does it have its own airline with multiple flights a day if it doesn't exist? (laughs) So that was a bit of fun doing some day trips outside of Vegas. So, and this was what, 2017. So I sort of had started to become a conference junkie and it started in 2016 where I ended up in Nashville. So the year before uh, around similar times and because this conference moves from one place to another all the time. That's why it was a good conference to go to because you just, you get to go to different places. Like I wouldn't necessarily have chosen Nashville as a place to go, but I absolutely loved it. So that was a bonus. And I only started that trip to Nashville because that was the year, if you remember, my father died 
and unexpected um or unexpectedly i was named in the will and i hadn't expected that at all um and so when i heard that i was you know going to be getting a bit of an inheritance i thought well my dad was always very big on education and so i thought it would make him happy to spend some of his money on education. So I booked this conference. It was in time with a few other exciting things that I will tell you about another time. And I really loved the whole conference experience. And it is a way of just making yourself, well, you get somewhere. And I can also claim, obviously, some of the expenses back, which makes it a bit cheaper than it seems at the outset. So 2016 started it. 2017 was the second time I went and it just happened to be in Vegas. So that's why I chose Vegas. But I spent ages working out a tour because I wanted to do the national parks and I didn't necessarily want to go do all these long walks in the middle of deserts um, by myself. So I, <laughs> I, um, I decided I'd better to do a a tour where they took us to the national parks and they would make sure that I left the national park. I do always take a whistle with me if I know I'm going to be doing some walking out out of the cities because just in case I do manage to fall over a cliff or do an injury in some other way, at least with the whistle I can hope that I can attract some attention even if I, you know, lose my voice or just can't scream loud enough for someone to hear. A whistle is a bit long, louder. But um, eventually I found a tool that did everything that I wanted to do. So, but I was really worried about, because it was called a hiking trip. And that made me nervous because I, in Australia, a walk and a hike are considered two different things, or I'd always considered them two different things. And I ended up checking this out. So in the in the Australian Dictionary, a walk is described as to go or travel on foot at a moderate pace. And then when you look up the word hike, it says to walk a long distance, especially through country districts or the bush for pleasure. So to me, they are slightly different things, and obviously that's what the Australian Dictionary says. So I was worried. In my head, I expect hikers to have all the paraphernalia, like special boots, the walking sticks, and but as a walker, you don't necessarily need or use any of those extra things. You just have some runners as your footwear and off you go. So I was really worried about what I'd signed myself up to. So I was very relieved to hear that hiking is also the same as walking <laughs> when it comes to American English understanding. So I didn't have to worry at all about how much walking was going to be involved, how much skill was needed, or how much specialty equipment was needed, and none of the above was needed. I was the youngest in the group, and it was a lovely group. We were all there for the same reason. We were all there for the scenery. So none of us had any specific walks in mind. We had no 
idea of pushing ourselves to the limit and going to the highest peak and all that sort of stuff. So whenever we were asked, where do you, what walk would you like to do? We, or what hike you would like to do, it would have been said. Um, everyone just said, oh, you choose. We're based on the scenery, whatever the most scenic walk is. And the guide would do that. So it was, it was a lovely trip. It was just a small group, but it, it was the only trip that I could find that went to all the national parks that I wanted to go to and I would uh it was was it southwest adventure tours and I would happily go back um on any of their tours I had a wonderful time the guide Haiti was absolutely amazing um she just knew all the walks she knew what to do she'd we never had to walk back if it was a walk or hike that didn't have you know a return a circuit or anything she would drop us off explain what we needed to do or what we needed to know she would drive to the other end of it and then she'd walk in and meet us wherever we ended up and that was really nice um but we all just literally wandered through enjoyed the scenery chatting away getting to know each other there was no let's do it in the fastest time or we literally just meandered along and chatted away so it was a very very nice little tour But I had time in Vegas both before and after the tour. So I stayed in multiple different hotels, trying them all out, which was kind of fun. It was nice to see different parts of the strip and just different styles of hotels. Um, But I didn't want to miss anything out of Vegas. And the strip is quite long. And it was kind of like... I was having trouble understanding how it all worked. Like, how could it take, you know, 20 minutes to walk next door? Like, how could it take? That's what Google Maps was trying to tell me. It would take me 20 minutes to get from one hotel to the hotel next door. (laughs) So I had no concept of the size and the scale that I was about to experience. So I did end up finding walking tours of the Vegas Strip, as in YouTube videos of people walking up and down the strip and showing me as it went by. And that's when I realized how it all worked and that each individual hotel is like a massive city block. So it's not just a hotel, it's a city block of entertainment (laughs) and hotel rooms, of course. But they're all sort of, some of them are intertwined and connected. Some you can just walk in from the front, some you have to sort of go around and behind and each has a selection of attractions and obviously the casinos and the hotel parts and restaurants and all that sort of stuff. And so after watching, I watched multiple walking videos and I, and zoomed in within an inch of its life, which you've heard me do before on Google maps to try and work out exactly or write my own walking tour. And it was quite a few pages in my travel Bible and it took me hours and hours and hours, (laughs) but it worked. It was amazing. I saw everything I wanted to see and I just followed the instructions I'd written down and it was, it was very easy, Um, but I could take my time at my own pace rather than if I'd had to do it in a walking tour group or something like that. Um, but I gave it recently to a girl from work who went to Vegas. I said, you know, I don't know if you'll understand it or whatever. I said, but if you're interested, you know, here's what I did and it will give you a breakdown on where everything is and you'll get to see everything basically in one day. 
Um, and she took it with her and she actually said it was helpful. And unfortunately, um, I don't know if it's a pandemic thing, but some of the attractions had closed since I'd been there. So 2017, I was there and she would have been there 2000. It was over the so 2022 into um, January 2023. Um, and she said some of the things had closed down and they no longer existed. So obviously Vegas has changed a little bit, but she said the instructions were easy to follow and it definitely helped see more in a shorter amount of time. And she said, yes, definitely pass them on when I said someone else at work was also going to Vegas. And she said, definitely worth giving it to them. I haven't given it to them yet. Actually, I think they leave very soon. So I'll have to talk to her about that soon. So my work paid off. It helped somebody else along the way. And there's, I do have a couple of pages of the instructions in the September chapter. So you can see the instructions sort of instructions that I follow when I've written my travel Bible. But I forgot to talk about the disaster of this trip. I cannot believe to this day that I stuffed up my American visa. So as an Australian, we can go under the visa waiver program, but we have to still apply for what's called an ESTA visa. And you know, I'd, I'd done it the year before. I knew what I was doing <laughs> and I just mistyped. So that was very annoying. So I turn up at the airport and I'm told I don't have a visa. But it was just quite funny how many people actually turned up at the airport besides myself without a visa. I mean, at least I thought I had a visa. It was just a typo. But the line was two or three deep when I joined it. And there was at least another three or four or more after me lined up at this. It's literally a desk at the airport window. So the back of their chairs face out to where all the taxis and drop-off area is and there's just the desk in front of them and that's it. But that's this flight center kiosk. And as a travel agency, they can help you get the ESTA visa. <laughs> and so, but they didn't open um, as yet. They must have opened at seven or something and I was there at six something. But the amount of people that lined up for this ESTA visa and they charged $55 for each one. So it must be huge business for them to get everyone's last minute ESTA. So it only t it's literally an online form. You fill it out, you press print and it's pretty much gone. Um, it's not a difficult process or a process or it wasn't a process that needed official approval and to be looked at. Now, apparently, um, you have to have that visa seven, at least 72 hours before your flight. So it's I, it doesn't take necessarily 72 hours to get it, but you have to have it. You can't just literally do it at the airport like I did it. So Flight Centre must have lost a huge part of their revenue <laughs> thanks to that um, change which happened at some point over the pandemic. But I accidentally skipped from 1996 all the way to 2017, completely forgetting 1999 and Space Camp. Oh, how could I have done that? Space Camp was absolutely amazing. It was something I had always wanted to do. And it was so 1999, at the end of 99 was when I was getting ready to leave America and come back to Australia for the first time or the first real time 
when I was so-called finishing my main traveling and working around the world. And so it was on the list of things that I had to do before I left. And it took me a while to organize it, but I eventually got it and I got exactly what I wanted and it was the best thing ever. And I was so surprised by how amazing my diary was. Like I thought I had quite a few memories from that, but when I was reading the diary, oh, the detail that I had written, and I wish I had this much detail about every day of my life Um, because there's just no way I would have remembered all the things that were there, and it was so much fun reading it. And so I've got a lot of diary excerpts (laughs) um, in the dates for the space camp because there's just no way I could do justice to it because I don't remember. I don't have the memories to write about it. I only have the words at the time. And I think the words at the time are going to be a lot more accurate than anything that I could read now um, or write now. So I'm very grateful that I had amazing um, diary from that trip. And it really was. It's a great week. Highly recommend it. You do not have to be a child to go to space camp. (laughs) This is adult space camp and so we were all adults. We had a couple of sort of teenagers, like 19 sort of age, who'd aged out of the children's program. But majority of us, there were quite a few in our 20s, there were 30s, 40s, and even, you know, people in their 50s. So if you've ever dreamt about going to space camp and thought you've missed out, trust me, you haven't. It's obviously changed a lot since 1999, But if nothing else, they'll probably always have the weekend adult space camp. So, you know, if it's always been a dream, go live it. (laughs) Because at the time, it was actually cheaper than a week at Disneyland. And I felt that I got much more value and more fun out of space camp than Disney World. And I love Disney World, but I still was like, well, if I had a choice between one or if I could only have done one, I, you know, space camp would have been definitely up there. So definitely don't think your dream is over if you've always wanted to do something like space camp. Highly recommend it and have a read of the story in the book if you haven't already, because it was so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. And the story from 2018 when I'm in New Orleans is also I was there for a conference or it was a trip that was based around the conference and I decided to take the long way there. So I caught the train from Los Angeles to New Orleans. We all know I love trains. And so that was a great way of getting there rather than arriving in Los Angeles from Melbourne and then getting on another plane and flying to New Orleans. I took the train instead. And unfortunately, it was it was a great trip on Amtrak, my good old little roommate and everything all to myself. But we did arrive, we were meant to arrive at about 9 p.m. into New Orleans, but we did not arrive till after midnight. And so I did catch a taxi from the train station to as close as they could get to the French Quarter for the hotel that I was staying at. And he couldn't get I had to walk maybe four or five blocks um, from where he could drop, the taxi driver could drop me off and to where the entrance to the hotel was. And the streets were 
pumping. Oh, it there were people everywhere. It was party central from woe to go. There were lavish costumes. Everyone was drunk but happy drunk. And the atmosphere and the music, and it was incredible. I had no idea. I'd actually, at first I thought it was just, oh, well, this is just normal New Orleans. <laughs> but that wasn't quite true. Um, unbeknownst to me, I'd arrived on the last day of something called Southern Decadence. So it's Labor Day weekend extravaganza. <laughs> Part as a multi-day event that's often considered a combination of New Orleans, Pride and Mardi Gras all rolled into one. Um, but it said something along the lines of bawdier, adult-focused twist. <laughs> so that's what gave the extra energy and excitement that I felt in the air as I was walking through dragging, trying to drag my um, wheelie sort of backpack, backpack on wheels through streets around drunk people. <laughs> um, so yeah, so they had street parties, concerts, club events, parades, all sorts of things. And it was the final night. So everybody was having their last, you know, amazing time before they all had to fly home the next day and go back to work. <laughs> now, had I known it was something special, even though I was tired and it was late, I do believe I would have stayed out, dropped my bag off and at least gone and wandered around the city. I just expected that that's what I was going to get every single night. I was staying on a Bourbon Street hotel. I paid for a really cheap room at a Bourbon Street hotel to start with and then upgraded for a couple of nights where I had a balcony overlooking the street. As we know, I don't drink. I'm not really a party girl, um, helped by the fact that I don't drink. And so it's not really my scene, but I thought at least if I had the balcony, I could at least watch the party without having to necessarily be involved or be in the middle of it. So I'd sort of planned out for, you know, wild nights, just not me in the middle of them. <laughs> um, but I just assumed I had a few more nights to make the most of Bourbon Street and the atmosphere. And so I, silly me, I went to bed. <laughs> um, and then, so obviously I found out that that wasn't normal. Um, it was extra, extra loud and extra atmosphere just because of the weekend that it was. And unfortunately, the weather was not looking great. There were predictions of a hurricane. So everyone got through the special weekend and then a lot of people obviously went home and a lot of the local businesses also shut up shop. So Bourbon Street was so quiet. Like I could never have imagined how quiet Bourbon Street was going to be. Like I just didn't think that was possible that it could be a quiet street. But it was a complete ghost town within, you know, a couple of days and there was just nobody wandering up and down the streets. Like me on the balcony was the only person around um, and everybody had cancelled um, hotels, people, um, the conference I was going to, a lot of people didn't turn up, including some of the presenters. They cancelled their trips so people who were coming in cancelled and people who lived there were leaving. So it was void of atmosphere, which was just such a contrast. 
after how I arrived. It was nice, like decorations had been left up, so there was still lots of rainbow colours everywhere, which was nice. And like I usually like empty streets and places to myself. It was just a little bit eerie because it was a place that was never meant to be quiet and I never expected to be quiet. Um, So that was a unique insight into uh, New Orleans. So obviously since Hurricane Katrina, the locals take hurricanes very, very seriously. None of them want to ever experience anything like what happened with Katrina. And obviously, as an outsider, I didn't take it too seriously. And I'm probably showing a little bit of disrespect for the people who actually lived through it. And we've all seen this, you know, the footage from Superdome and the awfulness that was there. But I definitely here in Melbourne, I don't remember hearing much about what happened in the French Quarter. I, we saw photos of the French Quarter underwater, but hadn't really comprehended what that may have meant to the people who lived in the French Quarter. And there were some horrific, horrific stories um, from what their residents went through as well. So every single part of New Orleans had some terrible time. So I don't blame them for taking it seriously. But like I said, to an outsider who's never really experienced a proper hurricane and never had, never lost anything due to a hurricane, seeing blue skies and sunshine thought nothing of the warnings. And even because I did a walking tour of the Garden District and I was the only one who turned up. So I think other people had booked and then cancelled. And I'm surprised she turned up, but she did turn up, the guide. She was very lovely. She was very sweet. I appreciated the fact that she did turn up just for me. Um, But she, we did finish a little bit early because it was just me. And she was very happy to leave and go because they were boarding up the windows of their house and then the moment they'd finished that, if her husband hadn't already finished by the time she got home, they were off to her parents' house to board up all her windows and then leave town. They were all packing up and going. So I appreciate the fact that she stayed um, for me, given that she was actually quite scared and planned to evacuate before there was any sign of even a cloud in the sky. Thankfully, that hurricane never materialised. The clouds did start rolling in not that long after I finished the walking tour. And a little bit of rain came down, but definitely nothing that you would consider storm rain um, or heavy winds or anything along those lines. So New Orleans was definitely spared any rough uh, weather at that particular time, but everybody had well and truly prepared for it. There were sandbags on all the door frames on all the closed shops. So um, it was a little insight into what it was like or what it would be like to live in a place where something like a hurricane can actually happen and does happen on a frequent basis and has had massive consequences for the people who live there. But to finish on a happier note than that, I will quickly mention something I forgot about the 2017 trip. I flew from Las Vegas to New York where I had bought tickets to see Bette Midler live on stage in the theatre production of Hello Dolly. 
Uh, I still remember <laughs> it was I was working a night shift at work and there was myself and one other nurse working in this really weird little room that we used to have where we had three babies between the two of us. And I I was humming and harring about whether I should book these tickets because they weren't cheap. It was it's the most money I've ever paid to see any sort of production or person or band or anything. And I was humming and harring, what do I do? Do I spend the money? Is it worth the money? And I am so glad I spent the money. I was on such a buzz as I was walking. I laughed. I cried. Bet was amazing. I had Goldie Horn sitting in front of me. <laughs> it was just a magical night. And I stayed somewhere where I could walk home from the theatre so I didn't have to worry about getting home afterwards. And I was literally floating down the street. In my head, I was dancing down the street. I was on such a high and I was just feeling very lucky and proud uh, of my, you know, how lucky I am that I had a, I have a life or a job that I could spend that much money and have a night like this. And I just wanted to feel that way forever and a day. And I'm not going to tell you what happened after that because that's in the book. <laughs> and I really want to finish on this buzz, the buzz that was produced by Bette Midler. If you ever get the chance to see her live, try to go. Um, maybe not necessarily spend as much money as I did, <laughs> but even if you spend a lot of money, I promise you it is worth it. It was just magical and I'm feeling that feeling a little bit of it now, a tenth or something of what it was now and it's making me all warm and fuzzy. So even if it's not bed middle that will make you feel that way, find something that will make you feel that buzz, that amazement, that excitement, that just pure and utter joy because that's what life is about. You need to have some joy. You need to have some laughs and some smiles <laughs> and all that fun thing. So I'm hoping I have made you smile or laugh at something today. Um, I will leave it here, end on the wonderful um, divine Miss M. And uh, so next week I will be reading some stories from the September chapter. So if you haven't read them yet, you'll get an inside peek into the direct words from the book next week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed some extra information about the stories or I've whetted your appetite and made you want to know more. <laughs> so there is more, obviously, in the book, which is 365 Dates of Travel. We're talking about the second six months, so it's volume two, part two, whatever you would like to call it, it's the second six months and which is available to buy wherever you buy your books from, your ebooks, paperbacks and so forth. You can find more information about the books and myself at the website, which is franheapwriter.com. And you can also find Fran Heap Writer on Facebook and Instagram. So there's lots of information out there should you wish to know more. Please remember, do get in touch if you have any comments about the podcast or about anything that you've seen about me or heard about me or anything on the podcast. And there's comments. You can contact me through the web page on social media. There's transcripts of the podcast on the um, blog page of my website and you can comment underneath individual episodes and things like that there. So 
thank you very much for listening today. I hope I will be chatting with you next week. But until then, I wish for you an interesting day. Thank you.